Now, now last week I began the message by talking about how preaching through books of the Bible means that a, a preacher, and hence a church, has to deal with sections of God's Word that seem odd uh, or hard to understand or even sometimes hard to believe. Passages that I, as a preacher, wouldn't choose to, to deal with if I didn't have to because I was going through a book of the Bible. Um, but God gave us the Bible in books. And so we go through books of the Bible. He gave us the Bible in books um, for purposes. And so we go through books of the Bible even when it seems less effective or less exciting or engaging or when it seems like a series takes a very long time to, to get through like Luke does. So last week we came to a good example of that in this parable of the unfaithful manager. Luke 16 verses 1 through 9 was what we looked at last week. Perhaps the most difficult parable to understand out of all of them. Well, many similar things could be said for the next few verses that we're looking at in Luke 16 this week. But the thing about these verses is not that they're so hard to understand. What do they mean? I can't get them. It's more that they seem oddly placed. They seem rather random. They seem like miscellaneous sayings here just kind of piled in one spot. Let me show you what I mean. Luke 16, if you have a Bible, and in verse 14, we'll read to verse 18. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is, forced, is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now let's first notice that it seems odd that what seems like a handful of miscellaneous sayings here, what I just read, are sandwiched between two money passages. The first we saw last week. The, the parable we saw last week is about money, and then Jesus gave some sayings, some teaching about money. And then next week we'll look at a parable about money, the rich man in Lazarus, a famous one. Sandwiched between are these these sayings, these teachings, and look at the various themes. Verse 14 is about money, but then verse 15, you can see, just glancing down your eyes, looking at the page, appearances has something going on there. Verse 15, justification is there in verse 15. Then verse 16, you have a lot of different themes. You have the law, you have the kingdom, you have the gospel, you have preaching. Then verse 17 kind of focuses in on the law. And then verse 18, out of nowhere, what, what is it? Divorce and remarriage. You see how that looks kind of random? It looks sort of like miscellaneous, a smattering of different teachings. It looks almost like Luke, the author here, didn't know where to put these different sayings from Jesus, and so he just threw them in the middle here. That wouldn't be wrong necessarily. It wouldn't necessarily mean that this isn't God's word or God's not behind it. That could happen, but... That doesn't seem the way, it seemed to be the way Luke is writing this history. He seems to, to have more purpose than that, more, uh, more thought and, and, and 
sort of organization than that. He's not just doing it chronologically either. There's some chronology to Luke. Definitely the birth of Jesus is at the beginning. Crucifixion and resurrection is toward the end. But the teaching stuff is categorized. Matthew seems to be more concerned with chronology than Luke. So Luke is very concerned with putting things in a spot that has to do with the stuff around it. So why is this here? Why is this section here, verses 14 to 18, like it is with these different teachings? Well, the keys to piecing these themes together and seeing some connectivity is this. The passage is about the Pharisees. And it's about the Pharisees' self-justification. And it's about the Pharisees' self-justification being so hypocritical. So three things. Pharisees, you see that in verse 14. Luke tips his hand to show us he's talking about the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees. The second thing, self-justification. Verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves. And then the third thing, there's a hypocrisy of it all that gets demonstrated in the rest of it. Those are the keys to understanding what Jesus is doing here what Luke is doing in showing us how this fits together. So really, this is a message that's something like an intro to the Pharisees. Intro to something of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of their religion. You may not know what the Pharisees are. They're mentioned a hundred times in the New Testament, so they're not unimportant. There's something like the nemesis of Jesus. There's something like the protagonists in the story of these gospel accounts. Here's a basic definition. It's a sect of Jewish religious political zealots with a strict interpretation of the Old Testament law and a famously rigid adherence to that law. And because they focus on the outward expression of the law, the appearance of obedience... They were also very concerned about developing an elaborate system of further rules for the application of the law. In other words, they made up extra laws about how to do the real laws. They made up more laws on how to do the laws. They called these the Mishnah and the Talmud. And really they said that these extra laws were on par with the original law. They said there's a a written Torah. Torah means law. And there's an oral Torah, what everyone has come up with since about this written Torah, how to do the Torah. And they're both on an equal plane. Again, this is an important topic, even if you think it's not. You might say, who cares if they're mentioned a hundred times in the Bible? I mean, just tell me how to live. Tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me how to make it tomorrow. I don't want to talk about Pharisees. Pharisees just sounds old. And you gave a definition that was long and thick and, I mean, look at these guys, Pharisees, they just, (laughs) that doesn't look fun, right? (laughs) These have to be new Pharisees, these have well-groomed beards, you know, kind of like Billy Mays on TV, I think, he's gotten a hold of these guys. You know Billy Mays is, right? He's dead, but he got a hold of him before he died. You're right. 
Like, you think of these guys. If, you, if you've heard much about the Pharisees, you've read through the Bible, you've seen them talked about in the Bible there, you can almost picture this kind of thing, and you think, I don't want to talk about the Pharisees today. Well, you know who else is like the Pharisees? You might be surprised how much we have in common with the Pharisees, how, how much of a contemporary problem Pharisaism is. Here's a guy who's a lot like the Pharisees. You know who this is? Yeah. Stuart Smalley, Saturday Night Live. Come on, anyone else 30-something in here? <laughs> Stuart Smalley was that great pop psychologist on SNL in the, the 80s or so, and, and his great line was, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and what? Doggone it, people like me, right? This is the sin problem, the universal problem of humanity. The nature of our rebellion against God and the wrestling with our own guilt is that we want to justify ourselves. We want others to justify us. We want to be accepted. We want to feel as though everything's okay. We want to feel as though we've done what's right, we've done what's needed to be done. One way of doing that is the way of the Pharisee, and it's giving it your all, it's doing what you can, it's going beyond the law. The other way is the way of Stuart Smalley, and it's just saying, it's okay, it's okay, they're there, saying it over and over again. Here's the question, where do we go for justification? Where do we go to feel justified? Where do we go to feel as though it's okay? Where do we go when we're grown-ups to be told it's okay? Where do we go for acceptance? Where do we go for peace? How do we get these things when we, we know we're all looking for these things? Well, we're going to look at the Pharisees. They had four ways here in these verses that didn't work. The first is this. They're justifying self with accumulation of wealth. Verse 14. The Pharisees were lovers of money, and they were scoffing. They were scoffing at Jesus, and they were scoffing at his teaching. They were scoffing that a poor man, a homeless guy, in fact, was talking about money, teaching on money and teaching on possessions. Who is he to talk about money? Who is he to give a lecture on what you should have and how you should think about what you should have? They're scoffing at this statement we saw last week in verse 13. That it's impossible to be devoted to God and to be devoted to money at the same time. You'll either love one and hate the other. You'll either be devoted to one and leave the other. It's impossible to please God and to please money. So we saw last week the Pharisees were lovers of money. And they're scoffing at Jesus because he's saying, you can't love God and love money. You might be surprised to know that the Pharisees were good, shrewd businessmen. Most of them weren't full-time religious scholars, religious people. They were bivocational, you could say. They were businessmen, full-time businessmen 
who also were really involved in politics and religion. But they had their business, and they treated it seriously. And they were good businessmen, shrewd businessmen, sometimes fierce businessmen. For them, it was easy to be fierce and sometimes illegitimate because it was a different compartment of their life. It wasn't the religious. One commentator captures this so well. Michael Wilcox says, These are men who lived a double life. For them, the sacred and the secular were watertight compartments. In the religious compartment, they were Pharisees with certain beliefs and practices by which they are assured of a good standing before God. The secular compartment was quite separate and that they could afford to be lovers of money for their attitude in such matters had no bearing on their religious status. That's why they ridiculed the idea that getting to heaven might be in some way connected with ordinary life. So how does your stuff, how does your money, how does your pursuit of stuff and money relate to your idea of justification, your sense of peace? Is your peace tied to stuff, to money? Maybe there's a sense in which you feel somewhat justified by your business success. Maybe there's a sense in which you feel somewhat justified by your business morality. And if you say, well, I I do, I feel good about my business, but I also know that there's this religious stuff over here and I I relate to God in a different way. But I do feel good about my, my business stuff here. Just like the Pharisees, they compartmentalized it. Or maybe you're like the Pharisees and you compartmentalize it thinking that you'll be justified as long as God never looks at your books, as long as God never looks over there at your business practice. No small part of the Pharisees' hypocrisy was was that they said they loved God, but they also loved their money and their business. And when Jesus picked at that and said there's a tension there, they scoffed. In other words, get this, when their justification of themselves by way of their money got challenged, they turned to a justification of self by way of scoffing. You know you're in trouble when you justify yourself by just scoffing. That's what it says here. It doesn't say they turned to a good argument. It doesn't say they had a good debate. It doesn't say they they really went at it with Jesus. It just says they scoffed. Just air. How hopeless. I hope you don't scoff. I hope you listen to Jesus. Even if it hurts, even if he's picking at something there that shows a self-justification. Secondly, The Pharisees were justifying self with the acceptance of others in verse 15. Jesus said, you justify yourselves in the sight of men. The religion was basically outward. It was basically on display, for show for others. So as others observed them and and probably concluded, man, if anyone's going to heaven, it's those guys. If anyone's making it, it's them. They had confidence. They felt good. But Jesus says, God knows 
your hearts. You see that juxtaposition there? You put it on display for others. You justify yourselves in the sight of men. It's outward. But God knows your heart. He knows the inside. What frightening words. Not unlike Jesus saying in Matthew 6. Listen to this. Where he talks about the difference between the inward and outward practice of religion. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet like the Pharisees actually did. So that you'll be honored by men. Uh, They have their reward in full. What do you mean they have their reward in full? Jesus is saying religious as they might be. Famously religious. Strictly religious. They won't be in heaven. Why? Because it's just a game to them. They think they earn it. They think it's for others. They think that if others are impressed, they're making it. That's the reward they get. Others are impressed. Jesus goes on to talk about other examples in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites that go in public and pray out loud. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who, who put on makeup and make their faces look sad. And You know, they say, oh, I'm fasting today. None of us do that today. We just don't fast. So it's not a problem for us, right? <laughs> we have other ones. Just let's think about hypocrisy and the facade of feeling justified by what others think of us when we get to control what they see. Do you realize how stupid that is? Of feeling saved because others think that we're saved because of what we showed them. How much would you pray if you only prayed? When no one saw. How much would you give? If you only gave when no one saw. How much, how much would you go? If you only went when no one saw. How much do you do? That you think's for God. But you know it's by compulsion. You know it's by outward constraint. You know it's because your wife will nag if you don't. You give, not because you prefer to give than buy shoes, because your husband doesn't want you to get those shoes. When we hear of gossip against us, by the way, even slanderous lies, so many people in church history have said this, Charles Spurgeon, we should remember that when people say the worst about us, They really don't know the worst about us. And if they did know the worst about us, they would say much worse than they do. Right? We get so mad. Someone's lying about me. It's not true. Oh, if they only knew what you think, your darkest thoughts. If they only knew what you said, your darkest moments God knows even more he knows even more than we know ourselves isn't that a scary thought God knows 
our hearts. So we need a righteousness, Jesus said, that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Matthew 5.20. If we'll enter heaven, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. We must have a self-confidence that exceeds that of Stuart Smalley. We can't look to others. We can't look to ourselves for that kind of justification. We know it's trumped up. We know it's fake. God knows our hearts. So let's start with this. We know we're in trouble. Wherever else this goes, let's just start with that. We know we're in trouble. Third, the Pharisees were justifying self by being selective with the law, with God's commands. Look at verse 17. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Matthew 5, verse 8 is probably more well-known, especially in the King James. If you grew up around the King James Version, you heard not one jot or what? Tittle will pass away. And you probably heard this before. You probably heard it in a sermon some other time. Jot is a reference to the Hebrew letter Yod, the smallest Hebrew letter. It's like our comma up higher on the line. So imagine a, a letter in our language that's as small as a comma. Not one of those will pass from the law. A tittle is the difference, the line difference between one letter and another. So, you know, a vertical line in our, our language is a vertical, it's an I. And if you put a, a cross there in front of it, it's a T. That line Changes the letter. That would be a tittle in Hebrew. Or, or even in, in Hebrew, sometimes it's just a dot that changes the letter. Not one yod, not one tittle will pass from the law. And I think what Jesus really means here in context is not one stroke of the law, not one letter of the law is optional. Why do I think that? Well, because the next verse, he brings up divorce. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That's about doing the law. And this is not just an arbitrary command. Jesus brings this up because it's one of the clearest examples of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Their divorce in remarriage. You probably didn't know that the famously righteous Pharisees were shrewd and crude businessmen. And you probably didn't know that the famously righteous Pharisees were habitual divorcers. But they were. And Jesus is pointing out that hypocrisy. That's why he mentions divorce here. It's not a random commandment. Remember they had all those extra laws, stuff that was the interpretation of the God-given law? Remember they had two Torahs, one God gave, written down, the other one was the oral Torah, that, that was sort of the interpretation of the law or how you do the law. Well, most of that oral law was much stricter than the actual law. But some of it was looser than the actual law, such as divorce. So Hillel, one of these fellows, 
He allowed a man to divorce his wife if she spoiled a meal. Another one, Aqaba, allowed for a divorce if a man found another woman that was more attractive. That was their interpretation of the Old Testament law. Now, divorce was allowed in the Old Testament law under certain circumstances. We won't go and deal with it now. But here you see Hillel, you see Aqaba loosening the law. They reason like this. God doesn't want you to sin. Let's remove the stumbling block of anger. She spoils a meal. God doesn't want you angry at your wife. Get a new one. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no one says anything like that today. God doesn't want you to stumble at seeing a prettier woman. He doesn't want you to covet that woman. If she's prettier, just divorce that one and marry the prettier one. Now here they are famous for the rigid discipline, devotion, and piety, and sacrifice. They're famous in the community for going beyond the law, for their white robes, for praying out loud and praying long at the wall. And yet they frequently break something that's foundational to creation. Do do you see why divorce is hated by God? He made the man to need a woman. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. It's as if there's a command built, even though it's not said, there's a, as he puts the man and the woman in covenant together to be one flesh, it's as if he gives them a command. They shall not be separated. And these religious leaders break that all the time. At the drop of a hat, when one's more attractive than another, when one spoils a meal, they break it. They break this thing that's fundamental to creation. They break this thing that is purposefully an illustration of God's redemption. Remember that? All through the Old Testament, into the New, God is saying, here's a picture of my love for my people. I will love them like a man loves a woman. I will sacrifice When she is unloving, when she is unlovely, I will go after her. I will be patient. I will wait. I will not give up. And that's why it cannot be broken. So look at Jesus' words again in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another multiplies the first sin he commits adultery and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband multiplies her sin and commits adultery you say Ryan aren't there other exceptions yeah there are matthew 5:32 jesus says if one of them has committed adultery then the other is free to divorce and remarry. 1 Corinthians 7.15 gives another exception, that if an unbeliever wants to leave a believer, the believer can let the unbeliever go, and then the believer is free to marry another. But that's not Jesus' point here. 
So my goal in this message is not to give a full and thorough study of divorce and remarriage in the Bible. That would take too much time. It would take a Saturday seminar for three hours or a, a seven-week Sunday morning series. Boy, that would I'd clear things out, right? That'd give us some, <laughs> some seating room. Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't give us a thorough treatment of divorce. By the way, let me just point this out. Isn't it funny how um, it doesn't seem like you can mention divorce without doing case studies? It doesn't seem like you can quote a Bible verse about divorce without answering, what about my divorce? What about his divorce? What about that remarriage? Well, listen, I got this friend who... We almost can't hear anything about God's word on divorce without having to hear a story about someone, somewhere, who had this complex situation. Never is one divorce the same as another. Believe me, in just 10 short years of pastoral ministry, man, every single one seems more complicated than the last. I can't believe it. But just note that we don't do that with teaching on prayer. We don't say, wait a minute, teaching on prayer. Okay, so I prayed this yesterday. Tell me if that was real prayer. Tell me if I really meant it. We don't do it with fasting. I fasted like this. Tell me if it was real fasting. We don't do it with, with marriage. When you first get married, okay, this guy married this girl. Was it right? Should he have married her? We don't do it with anything else, but we do it with divorce. As soon as divorce is mentioned, people go, wait a minute, what about this one? Just listen, just listen. Guards down. Whether in divorce or in just a bad marriage or whether you've been through a divorce or whether you're contemplating a divorce or whether, you, whether you've got some other glaring hypocrisy you're wrestling with right now, let let me ask some questions. Like the Pharisees, have you started justifying yourself? Remember, that's the key to the passage, justifying self. Key to the passage is hypocrisy here. Are you justifying yourself to keep doing what you're doing, to keep heading down the path you're going? Did you go about a divorce without even asking yourself if you had biblical grounds for it? If you're not a Christian, I, I'm not even talking to you about this. This, this is for Christians. The Bible is for Christians. We're, we're taking God's book for God's people and trying to apply it. So if you're here as a, not as a Christian, glad you're here. But, but please don't hear me picking on uh, your morality or lack thereof. But Christian... Are you contemplating divorce with little thought about what the Bible says? Are you so transfixed on your hurt, on your own wants right now, that you won't even let your mind meditate on Micah, I'm sorry, Malachi 2.16, that God hates divorce? Will you let your mind go there? Are you wondering whether... God hates your spouse more than he hates divorce. I know your crappy marriage is complicated. 
I'm not presuming to think otherwise, but ask yourself if the complications and the layers of junk have so deceived you into thinking that you now don't have self-righteousness in your marriage, that you now don't need introspection, that you aren't doing self-justification, that the Pharisees do that not you, or that you even do it at other parts of your life, but you don't do it right now in your marriage and in your marriage problems. Not bloody likely, right? We know better. We know better at our best of times. Now, you're wondering if I'm talking about your marriage. Uh, Yeah. All of them. Frankly, there are enough that I can, I can say this and not be picking on anybody. We got a lot of problems. And maybe marriage isn't your hypocrisy. It was the Pharisees. So was their money. Maybe not for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe pornography. Maybe gossip. Maybe it's something just nobody knows but you and Jesus. But Christian, you're his. If he's forgiven you and called you to walk in newness of life, if you're baptized in him, been raised to walk as his, we can't put away a yod or a tittle of the law and ignore it. Oh, I know much more than a yod and much more than a tittle condemns. It shows us our sin, but we have to live there and see it and keep fighting. We can't. We we can't say, you don't go there, Jesus. You can't scoff. You scoff. And you may you may be proving you're not his. There's no other, there's no nicer way to say it. In fact, that's the most loving way I can say it. You see, the problem is so much bigger than divorce, and Jesus only puts this at the end because it was their biggest problem. So this isn't a focus on the family message. What is your hypocrisy? Where do you find yourself desperate and hopeless and wanting? Let's look at this last thing here. They were justifying themselves by ignoring the kingdom. Verse 16, back there it said, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Here Jesus says there are basically two eras or epics in God's plan. The law and the prophets of the Old Testament, and then... This era, since John the Baptist and Jesus and now, where it's the kingdom, it's here. The law and the prophets didn't show us a different way of salvation. You didn't get saved through the law. The promises were always the same. It's by grace. It's by God's mercy that we're saved only. But God gave this law to expose sin, to make it hard, 
The Pharisees are case in point that you can't, you can't follow it. What you'll have to do is follow it just to the external and miss the heart. Or you'll have to just do some of it and then kind of make rules about why you're not doing others. They justified themselves other than letting the law do its work. Let the law do its work. Some of you are just bristling right now instead of letting the law hit you. Let the law do its work. The law is good. But the law is not enough. The law isn't just meant to make us hurt. The gospel came in the kingdom. Jesus preached that the kingdom was here and the gospel has been preached. Just like the Pharisees missed the whole point of the law, they missed that the kingdom was right in their midst and the gospel was being preached. And here's what the gospel says. Hear these words from Paul, the apostle, who preached the gospel like this. In Romans 3, he said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what law shows us. But having been justified, here's that word. Justified how? By self? Justified by others? Justified by my money? Justified by my business? No, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He redeemed us from the law by dying in the place of those who deserve to die. He took our punishment. So then Paul goes on, well then we're as bragging. It's excluded. What, what kind of law are we talking about then? He says, is this a law of works? No, it's a law of faith, belief, trust. Then Paul talks about Abraham in chapter 4, and he says, was Abraham justified by works, by doing, by trusting in his Goodness, like the Pharisees were? No. No. It says in the Old Testament, back in Genesis 12, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. His belief meant that righteousness came as a gift. So then Paul says, think about the way that it works at your job. To the one who works, the payment is a wage. It's not a gift. So when you work for it, it's not a gift. It's a wage. But God gives grace. He gives the kingdom. Have you received it? George Whitfield, the revivalist, said, before you can be at peace with God, you must be brought out of your self-righteousness. How about you? Have you come to understand the hopelessness of your self-righteousness? The hopelessness of your self-justification? Have you given up on self? I know the world tells you, don't give up on self. Come on, you can do it. Have you given up on others? I know the world tells you, don't give up on others. Just find the right one, someone you can trust. Well, in an eternal sense, the Bible says you must give up on yourself. You must give up on others. And now you're ready for a Savior. That's Christ. He's not just a good teacher. He's a Savior. 
don't put him off. You've heard this gospel preach. It's in your midst just like it was for these Pharisees. They chose instead self-justification and ignoring the kingdom preached. Christian, remember what Jesus told the disciples on more than one occasion, like in Luke 12, 1, where he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of leaven, which spreads. Beware of that hypocrisy. Deal with your sin. Keep running to the cross. Keep fighting your independence and your self-righteousness and your lawlessness and your resistance to God's word. Daily recognize your newness in him. The glorious reality of the kingdom in our midst. Be a happy, forgiven Christian. Walk happily in the sufferings of Christ. Even in the sufferings of obedience. This is a heavy message today. I know that. It's a heavy passage in God's word. But let's not have that be the end this morning. Let's not that have, have that be the tenor of this week. Because it won't be the tenor of eternity if we're in Christ. Listen to Spurgeon, a happier and better preacher than me. I close with this. He says, It will always give a Christian the greatest calm, quiet, ease, and peace to think of the perfect righteousness of Christ. How often are the saints of God downcast and sad? I do not think they ought to be. I do not think they would be if they would always see their perfection in Christ. There are some who are always talking about corruption and the depravity of the heart and the innate innate evil of the soul. This is quite true. But why not go a little further and remember that we are perfect in Christ Jesus? It's no wonder that those who are dwelling upon their corruption should wear such downcast looks. But surely if we call to mind that Christ is made for us righteousness, we shall be of good cheer. What? Though distresses afflict me, though Satan assault me, though there be many things to be experienced before I go to heaven, those are done for me in the covenant of his grace. There is nothing wanting in my Lord. Christ Jesus has done it all.